Hello, welcome to season three. I am so excited to bring you season three. I hope you really enjoyed season one and season two. Um, If you have, and if you would like more, a little bit more guidance and a little bit more support, make sure that you check out my monthly membership for moms. It is called By Design and it is currently open for enrollment. So make sure you go check it out before the doors close. It will be closing for three months and not open again until December. So give that a check out. Um, But I am really excited to bring you season three. Um, We have guest experts from all over that I'm interviewing, and they're all people that I love learning from, and I really chose them intentionally because I feel like they'll be so helpful and powerful to you. If you have any other ideas of people that you think would be great to have as a guest on my podcast, make sure that you reach out to me on Instagram, but let us dig into today's episode. I am so happy to welcome Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife, and today we're talking about sexuality, motherhood, and personal identity. Dr. Finlayson Fife is an LDS relationship and sexuality coach, as well as a licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of Illinois. She has a PhD in counseling psychology. Her teaching and coaching focus on helping LDS individuals and couples achieve greater satisfaction and passion in their emotional and sexual relationships. In addition to consultation with couples and individuals in person and online, she teaches online relationship and sexuality courses designed to foster self and sexual development and create happier relationships and individuals. Dr. Finlayson Fife also offers many live workshops and retreats for couples and individuals. Jennifer is a frequent guest on LDS themed podcasts and writes articles for LDS themed blogs and magazines on the subjects of sexuality, relationships, mental health, and faith. Hi, and welcome. I'm so excited to have you on my podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, I know a lot about you, but I don't know how many of my listeners do. So first of all, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about you, what you do, and then also just kind of what got you into the space. Like, why are you even interested in it in Mm. the first place? Mm. Okay. So I'm Jennifer Finlayson Fife, and I am a coach and licensed therapist and instructor. And I work primarily with the Latter-day Saint population because um, I wrote my dissertation on um, Mormon women and sexual agency because I was really interested in um, on a patriarchal impact on women's sense of agency and also faith-based culture and how it impacts sexuality and the meanings around sexuality and how all of that shapes women's um, decision-making and sense of self around sex. So it was a very interesting dissertation. I really loved it. And, and so my work has just kind of naturally led me to working with faith-based um, in women, couples. Um, I'm also doing more work with men, but really my goal in the instruction and coaching that I do is helping people to have uh, to develop in their lives and to develop more capacity for emotional and sexual intimacy so that they have more peaceful relationships. And so I do a lot of that through online teaching and one-on-one coaching and, and so on. Yeah. That sounds awesome. I, that dissertation just sounds so interesting. Like yeah. all of the combination of all of those things just, yeah, that sounds yeah. awesome. Okay. So I, yeah, go mm-hmm. ahead. Oh, I was just thinking, I didn't really answer your second question, which is what brought me into the work. I mean, I think the simple answer is just that as a kid, I was just always interested in human behavior and in particular in relationships and why some people were happy in their lives and happy in their relationships and why Mm -hmm. others were not. So it's just always been 
a natural draw and puzzle for me that I've cared about. And so that just kind of with time naturally led me into pursuing this line of work, which I've, I've absolutely loved. Oh, I love that. I, that is exactly how I described myself when I was growing up. I was just so interested in human behavior. And so Mm -hmm. I immediately went into school to take psychology because I thought I just want to figure this out. And, um, and through the relationship that I'm really interested in is in the parent child relationship. I'm Mm -hmm. just so interested in the dynamics there and what makes it work and what are effective relationships and what aren't and how to make that healthy. Um, Mm -hmm. but I love this. I love this idea. And so what comes up for a lot of my clients is sexuality and intimacy issues. And, and so that's what I wanted Mm -hmm. to dig into with you because you're such an expert in this field. Mm -hmm. So, um, my first question for you is why do you think it's such a struggle for moms to be comfortable during intimacy? So either, you know, Mm -hmm. I see this during pregnancy, but often when their kids are little, but even when kids are older, Mm -hmm. it can still be a struggle for moms. And some of them have mentioned, you know, body image issues or not being comfortable with their bodies, but I'm Mm -hmm. sure that there's more to that as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I would love for you to chat about that. Well, one thing is that, especially, this is especially true in Western, um, well, more accurately, even puritanical culture, is this idea that um, sexuality is antithetical to maternal instincts. So that is Mm -hmm. that sexuality is kind of base and desire-based and selfish, maybe, And motherhood is selfless and desirelessness and kind of self-sacrifice. And for a lot of people, religious or not, that they have inherited these ideas that those two do not mix well. So a lot of women I work with who were happy with their sexuality, you know, comfortable enough with it in early marriage, once they got pregnant and had a baby, there's a sort of almost unwitting desire to distance from sexuality as a way of creating a safe space for the child, a way of almost fulfilling an identity about what it means to be a good mother. And I think these are not particularly helpful. I mean, on one hand, I, I, there's a part of it that I really do understand. And I think actually has a place which I can articulate if you want, but I think that this is not a helpful, this is too limited of an idea about motherhood and too limited of an idea about sexuality. Okay. I love that because that totally jives with what I teach. I feel Mm -hmm. like people feel like they have to lose themselves in motherhood or they have to be selfless and that that's the way to be. Um, But what I have seen is actually when we do focus on the self, when we figure out ourselves, when we feel more confident in ourselves, when we take better care of ourselves, that's where our best parenting comes from and it flows naturally and it's not so forced. So I would love to hear um, your take. You said, you know, if you want me to talk more about this, what is the the place that that has? So why is that sometimes effective? Well, so there, there is a biological aspect of this division between sexuality and motherhood that I think is at least early on. And that is to say, early on, all of your resources are really about keeping this baby alive. And mm-hmm. so there is a natural sort of suppression of self that happens in the earliest stages that is uh, functional. And by that, I mean, you're getting up at 2 a.m. and then again at 4 a.m. And yeah. you're nursing even though your breasts hurt and you are doing all kinds of things yeah. for this little person to thrive. 
And that's valuable. And thinking about sex in those times is probably a lot less likely. You're also sleep deprived. Yeah. Hormonally, you're probably pretty whacked out. <laughs> you know, you're, the, the ability to kind of even do the things you used to do is so disrupted that it makes sense that belonging to your sexual sense of self would be unlikely during this period. Mm-hmm. And I would say nothing's going wrong because it's all hands on deck. Uh, for a, a higher purpose. Yeah. Where I think it goes wrong is that a lot of times people get sort of locked into that rather than a temporary place in which they are momentarily or for an episode or for a period putting some of this aside for this larger goal. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have learned like this is the way to be a mother, always in this intense self sacrifice, this desirelessness. Yes. Through your children, you know, um, you don't belong to your, you know, sexuality is so linked to belonging to your sense of self. And if you've learned that to be a good mother, you shouldn't. Right. Yeah. Um, then it's hard to believe that there is a legitimate place for that within the family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I totally. And I feel like even in my own experience, my own story was like this. Like I feel very, like I kind of just got stuck in that, in that motherhood, losing my sense of self, not really Mm -hmm. knowing what do I like? What do I like? I didn't, wasn't pursuing my education or my passions anymore. And, um, and it was really finding that again, that Mm -hmm. really, really helped Mm -hmm. my parenting in such a huge way and helped really every area of my life. And I Mm -hmm. see that in um, my clients so often too, where they, you know, feel lost. They'll they'll often use those words. Like I feel lost Mm -hmm. in my motherhood. And when I say, well, you know, try doing something that you enjoy again, try finding your passion. They're like, I have no idea. Like, I don't even Mm -hmm. know where to start. Mm -hmm. So where do you encourage people to start when they're feeling that way? Well, I think the first thing is to help challenge the idea that it's a virtue to have suppressed yourself so deeply Mm -hmm. or the idea that it's a kind of zero sum game that if you do something that matters to you, you're taking away from your children. Yes. I remember thinking that like when in the midst of the thick of parenting for me, we had the ability to add on to our house. And the other thing I really cared about and also studied for a couple of years was interior design. So I was thrilled at the opportunity to be involved in creating a space that was really functional and cost efficient and so on. I felt guilty at first, like when I'm out pricing stone countertops, like it was a thrill. And Mm -hmm. also I would feel like, you know, somehow I'm taking away from my children if I'm doing this. And it took me a bit to realize that when I would come home and be so have enjoyed that hour and a half so much. And then to come back and see that I enjoyed my children more, even when I came home and they'd had good care while I was gone, that this was not, it was starting to make me see that there is something to me thriving outside of motherhood that actually blesses my motherhood. Yes. Yes. It really is that our brain just goes to the all or nothing of like, I have to just spend all my time with my kids or I have to spend all my time on myself, but it's this perfect center space where we accept that we have our own identity and we accept that our children have their own identity. And we also like exactly what you said, we accept that spending time outside of our motherhood, doing things that fuel us and fuel our passions and that we're interested in can nourish us so that then we actually parent so much better. Yes, absolutely. 
And, you know, for people that are in that black and white thinking, often it's, they've been inducted into it. I remember there was some song when I was in college within my religious community that was like, my mom loved me so much that she gave up her PhD. And just that idea that love is about my mother not having a life Mm -hmm. of her own. And that's a really compelling idea, but not a particularly valuable one. Because if you don't develop a self and you live through your children, then you are constantly uh, looking to them to reinforce your sense of being enough, Mm -hmm. being legitimate, being sufficient. And if you're looking to your children for that, you're not going to have it. uh, You're going to basically be pressuring them paradoxically to take care of you yeah. Rather than you being able to sustain your sense of self and to live a, a joyful life and love them and show yeah. them how to live a joyful life. It's like your sense of love for yourself is reliant on them and their actions. Yeah. So if they choose a path that you don't necessarily agree with or you don't want them to choose, then you're like, oh, that's my fault. This has to do with me and my parenting. And- yeah. Or pressure them to do what makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. But that's not about love. That's about use of the child. Right, right. So it's almost like when we can find our own identity and focus on our own identity that we actually allow them to have the freedom to have their identity as well. It's like this beautiful synergistic relationship that we can get into when we can release that, that control and that, and that black and white thinking, like you said. Yes. Um, So going back to sexuality, Let's talk about um, any suggestions that you have for someone that feels like they want to be more comfortable with their sexuality and maybe they're on the path of, you know, belonging and trying to figure out where they belong. And maybe they're doing kind of that identity building stuff that we can do, um, but still finding it difficult to be comfortable um, during intimacy. What, what would you suggest? Um, well, let me first actually go back because I think I didn't ever fully answer your first question, which was mm-hmm. like, first of all, it's seeing what you're doing. But I think the second thing is starting to develop aspects of yourself. Like it's challenging this selfless, selfish idea, like I'm either mm-hmm. one or the other. But it's also what are the things that really matter to me? What are er- now, there's a time and a season. And if you're in the thick of young parenting, it may not be the right season. But how do I develop parts of my life, my identity, my capacities that matter to me? Because this self-development and this capacity development is very much linked to a sense of your own solidness, your own self-reliance, your own ability to not be dependent on your husband or your children or Mm -hmm. your social group to tell you you're enough, but that you are actually developing skills and abilities that extend beyond parenting. So this is just about developing, this is like self-defining activity. This is developing capacity, efficacy, and a sense of self that is broader than the particular role of mothering. And this is linked and foundational to sexual development um, because, as I said earlier, belonging to a sense of self is very linked to belonging to your sexuality. We are inherently embodied beings. If we reject our body, we reject our sexuality, it is integrally tied to rejecting ourselves. Now, this is a lot of what feminism has said about the impact of messaging that shames women's bodies 
or shames their sexuality, that this is a way of controlling women and keeping them limited. Yeah. If you look at like fundamentalist Islam, the shaming of the female form and of her sexuality is much more overt. There's clitoridectomies, burqas. It's like your power of your sexuality should be shamed and shrouded and curtailed. That's a way of keeping control of women. And if you want to be strong, you have to be comfortable in your own skin. You can't feel that you are somehow a threat because of your sexual nature or somehow inferior because of your embodiment. And so this tendency to shame and inhibit ourselves so that we're not too much for others is to self-betray and to undermine our peace with ourselves. That's very, very important to being able to love and to offer oneself and to be authentic and to be honest in the world. And to the degree that we're trying to earn our value or show the world things that we think that can tolerate, hide the parts of ourselves we think it can't, the more inhibited and fear-based we are. And so this making peace with oneself and one's embodiment and one's sexuality is extraordinarily important. And sometimes it means looking directly at the messages that you received around your sexuality or around your embodiment that are interfering with you making some peace with it. Hmm. So where do you suggest people start then? Like this, I love what you just said and how you're tying this all in together because it's not something I've really thought of before, how the sexuality had to do with our own self-identity and our own belonging. Mm. And, and um, you know, all of this is so interesting. And if someone's listening to this episode and is like, yes, 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 like mm-hmm. where do they start? Like what would they practically do to mm-hmm. help them get there? So, you know, I, I teach a course called, an online course called The Art of Desire. Mm-hmm. And what I do for probably the first half of the course is help people to see the messages that they've received around what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a good woman, what, you know, how she relates to sexuality, how she relates to desire, how she relates to other people's desires, because whether religious or not, these are very common ideas that women are either given and or gravitate towards because women tend to be very good at tracking what other people want. It's a survival thing for a baby that a woman can track very easily what that child wants, right? Yeah. But when you're super aware of what everybody wants from you all the time, it's very hard to know what you want and to quiet some of that enough to know who you are in that equation, right? So when you're saying, how do people do it? First of it is is turning on the lights enough to see what you actually are participating in because you can't change what you can't see. So my first goal in working with people is to help them see the meanings that they are living, whether or not they are articulated to themselves. Because in seeing it, you now have more agency, more freedom to choose differently. Now, it may make you anxious to choose differently because in your family, you may have learned that denying sexuality or covering up all the time or acting like your husband is offending you by wanting to be sexual with you. Meaning lots of people take these messages in just by watching their own families Mm -hmm. and don't even know that they're operating within them. 
So the more you can see them and see what effect they have or what their meaning is, the more you have the ability to choose differently. You know, the second half of the course is about offering women a new way of thinking about sexuality and embodiment and embracing of these things, much in the way I was just talking about, which is to see it as a function of belonging to your strengths, not as, you know, producing something for a husband by being sexual. Nobody's going to, no good woman, no solid woman's going to want that. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to service a man for life, right? Yeah. But if she sees her sexuality as part of embracing her own capacity and no longer self-betraying by accepting her body as it is, not as magazines might dictate it should be, something like that. As soon as we start to see that as this is a way of being true to myself, offering the kindness and the compassion and the acceptance that I want from others, I at least am going to offer it to myself. That's an act of courage. It's an act of self-respect and it sets you up to be more at peace with yourself and unapologetic for your desires, for your capacity, for your strength, for your sexuality. Because if you're going to be in a sexually intimate marriage or relationship, you, you can't be anxious and apologetic because otherwise you're going to be hiding and managing what's knowable about you. When sex is really good, it's free. And the only way for it to be free and honest is to be accepting enough of yourself that you're okay with being known, flaws and all. Oh, I love this. I love this. I've never thought of the idea of our sexuality being that self-acceptance. Like I'm all about self-acceptance if uh, you yeah. know affecting our parenting and that it just flows naturally, but it's like right. our sexual life will also flow naturally if yes. we can accept ourselves. And I love yes. that you said you can't change what we you can't see because right. it's so true if we don't see all of the different even now like not just how we were raised, but there's just like a constant bombardment of like this is how your body should look. This is what sexuality right. should be. This is how you should be or shouldn't be. And all of that messaging that we get even subliminally or whatever is uh, just hugely affecting our own yes. self-image. That's right. So That's right. thank you. I love that. Um, what do you think are some kind of core ingredients to have a healthy sexual, sexual relationship with your partner? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one core ingredient, and it's, you know, very much in line with what we're talking about, which is that you see your sexuality and your pleasure as on par with your spouse's. Okay. So again, you know, I work with people who've grown up in pretty traditional ideas about sexuality mm-hmm. and man, you know, masculinity and femininity. And a lot of my clients see the woman's desire as secondary to the man's. Yes. Now, LDS couples are not the only people who think like this, believe me. I mean, just even Viagra, we don't have really an equivalent for women. I mean, (laughs) men's pleasure is clearly valued by society and women's is more like an afterthought and good for her if she gets a little pleasure, but Mm -hmm. not, not seen as kind of fundamental. And so you know, many of my clients heard messages from their parents or from their mother on their wedding day saying things like, you know, don't ever tell him no, if you want him to not stray. Okay. So that's just an idea that your sexuality as a woman is there to service the man. Yeah. It's like it belongs to them instead of it belonging to you. Exactly. And so your sexuality is legitimate by capitulating to the man's sexuality. Well, that's just a setup to absolutely hate it because it's connected 
to a kind of self-betrayal. And in the realm of sexuality, you know, it's one thing to feel like you're kind of being used because your friend borrows a book and doesn't ever return it or something. Sexuality is so intimate that it's a very core way to self-betray. And so it doesn't go well in marriages if that's the meaning that's being lived out. So I think that, you know, the idea that the sexuality isn't legitimately the woman's also is just a setup for resentment and frustration and anger. And so couples that do best believe that this is a shared endeavor. This is a team sport (laughs) that both people's pleasure matters, not just what one person wants. And if the other will capitulate or accommodate, that's miserable and misery inducing for both. Um, because if, if a woman's just capitulating or accommodating, the man never feels desired. So he might get sex, but never feel wanted. And so if you're going to really want this, it has to be something that both like and enjoy. Now, one person can't control whether or not both enjoy it. Both people have to approach it as how do we create something we want? And that takes some courage because if a woman has learned, oh, the way to be a woman is to kind of deny that you want anything or, you know, that the husband, the man's going to show you the way into good sex or, you know, I'm just going to keep the kids in my head for the whole evening and hopefully he can break through it. I mean, that is just not going to work. You, you yeah. have to be also committed to creating something desirable and rejuvenating, something where you do feel free, not like you're trying to be what he wants. And of course, your husband could be in that bad position of, hey, you know, you should take care of me, but you can challenge that framing by who you are and how you address and talk about who you are as a couple and what you want. I see a lot of people who just kind of move into resentment Mm -hmm. and withholding as a way of handling some of those negative meanings rather than stepping toward it addressing it with some courage and creating something stronger between them through that honest process. Oh, I love that because I do think so many times we're just afraid of it. So I love that you use the word courage because it's like, we're still going to be afraid maybe to have that conversation, Mm -hmm. but opening up the communication and being like, this might be a little bit of a awkward conversation for the both Mm -hmm. of us because we haven't talked about this before, but and just opening it up and and talk, having the courage to talk about it, um, I yes. think that's a huge ingredient of that healthy yes. sexual relationship. Yes, exactly. Okay. So another thing that I wanted to ask you about was this, I feel like this comes up so often. I've heard it so many times that I wonder if it's just kind of thought of as the norm where there's kind of like an over-desire partner and an under-desire partner. And there's, Mm -hmm. there has to be one in the other. I don't know if that Mm -hmm. really is the case or not, Mm -hmm. but, um, um, if you have any like ideas Mm -hmm. on how to help that, but also is that kind of the norm that you see? Um, well, you know, Dr. Schnarch, uh, who wrote the book, Passionate Marriage, and I've done quite a bit of training with, you know, he said, you know, there's always a higher and a lower desire person. And I think that's technically true in the sense Mm -hmm. that even if both people want it, one might want it a little bit more than the other there, that is to say very seldom are couples like always matched at all times. I mean, I think that's obvious. Um, 
whether or not there is a problematic pattern of one high and one low, that's a different issue. So there's two different factors playing in. One is that there are differences in people, right? So I think of it sometimes in terms of music. There's some people who just love music. They listen to it all the time. They have natural musical ability. They, they find it just, it's like a language that's super easy. And other people that, you know, are tone deaf, don't have as much natural musical ability, don't understand music as well. And aren't. And I think it's similar in sex. So there is biological differences around sexual uh, curiosity, interest, passion. Um, but much like music, sexuality is kind of part of being human. I mean, there is the rare condition of amusia and probably the rare condition of asexuality. Mm-hmm. Then there's this spectrum of interest. And I think there's, you know, a lot of inherent suppression of sexuality that has, that would be very different than in the musical realm because there's no shame around music or very yeah. little, right? <laughs> yeah. Sexuality, there's a lot of shame and anxiety So it drives these punctuated differences in my experience. Mm -hmm. So so there may be natural differences, but then there's often these artificial differences that are being driven more by the way the couple is handling the anxiety around sex and the issues around belonging to oneself and comfort with oneself that get played out in a sexual power struggle that looks like high desire and low desire. So oftentimes in the couples I work with, it can look like the woman is the one who has the sexual anxiety because she's low desire. She mm-hmm. shut the whole project down. She has no interest in it. And it's easy to be like, wow, she's so broken. You know, what's her problem? Let's get her fixed. And then this couple will be fine. And that's a, that's an easy idea. One I used to think, um, But in reality, often that person, the woman is shutting her sexuality down in part, in part because she is anxious about it, in part because she believes that a woman can't be good and be sexual, but also because she doesn't want to be propping up this guy's ego for life. She doesn't Mm -hmm. want to be serving his needs. One quick way out of this is to say, I have no feelings. I'm asexual. I have very little feeling. I'm just different than you and back off. Okay. And so the the good judgment is in it is in, I don't want to manage how you feel about you all the time through sexuality. The man often has an an artificially inflated desire. And I'm just doing this in a gender stereotyped way because I've definitely seen it in the other direction for the same reasons. Right, Um, right. And like where the man is anxious about sex, shuts it all down. And then the woman's the high desire one trying to get reassurance through him wanting her, which he never offers. And then it makes her higher desire. Same with the man in this way of thinking about it, that he feels rejected sexually, has anxiety about his own sexuality, his own desirability, his own personhood, just like the woman does. Mm -hmm. But the way he handles it is want me, accept me, make my sexuality legitimate, make me feel okay. What's your problem? I have needs. You know, a lot of times men are fed these lines in our culture to kind of pressure their entitlement, which only ends up backfiring and working against them. And the woman's like, okay, I'll give you sex because you have your stupid needs, but it's not passion or it doesn't validate him. It doesn't make him feel wanted or sufficient. And so then it makes him go looking for it again make me feel like I'm okay, accept me in this way. And so there's this power struggle 
that's really based in the desire to get a sense of legitimacy through either not wanting sex or wanting it. But both are struggling with the same thing, just in different forms. Oh, that is so fascinating. Is your, so your workshop that you do, Art of Desire, you've talked about mm-hmm. that on this call. Um, do, do you, is it for both parts of the so, couple, like male and female can both go to that? So or? I have no, the Art of Desire is the women's course. Um, okay. And I just developed the men's course, which is called the Art of Loving. So it's helping, these are both individual online courses that okay. you can take that help you to see your role in this well, to see your relationship to yourself more clearly, yes, how that impacts your marriage or partnership, to see your relationship to sexuality and where you're struggling in your relationship to your own sexuality, desires, and embodiment. It can look different between men and women, but men and women both struggle with this because it's fundamental to kind of self-acceptance and self-development. And then how this plays out in the dynamic in your marriage and what you can do about it. I also have two couples courses that, um, you know, one is a relationship course to see how you are participating in dynamics that may be comfortable and familiar to you in your marriage, but that create resentment and unhappiness Mm -hmm. and constriction and what you can do about it. And then I have a couple's sexuality course to better see, like you can't change what you can't see, to see the meanings that you've fallen into as a couple that have killed passion between you that have made these desire differences more punctuated and how in seeing them, you can engage differently to create more freedom and openness and intimacy in your partnership. So they're really designed to be instructional and self-diagnosing, like to be able to see yourself clearly enough to know how to do differently. Yeah. I love that because when you were talking about the low desire and high desire Mm -hmm. and how it's kind of amplified or exacerbated artificially, Mm -hmm. um, I think that I I see this often and like what you said, it it is, can be gender stereotypical, but I've seen it the other way as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think doing something together or even individually, but both kind of having that same mission of like, okay, we're going to, we're going to try and, um, you know, feel healthier sexually and have a better Mm -hmm. relationship and figure out this whole intimacy thing. I think to do Mm -hmm. it together would be so powerful. Yes. So I love that you offer both of those options. Yes, it is. And yeah, when couples do it together, it's super powerful because all the line, all the car, the wheels in the car all start pointing Mm -hmm. in the same direction. But it's also true that even if one person starts to address their half, it breaks the negative dynamic. And then opens up the possibility of the other person starting to look at and see their half because their half is no longer working in the way it used to. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I call this like the dance. Like you're like always dancing the waltz or whatever. And then the one person stops. I usually talk about this in regards to parenting, but it's really any relationship, right? As soon as we start to shift and change, they're going to have to be like, okay, wait, what are my moves now? Like, how do I... How do I shift this? So if you're listening to this and your husband is not interested in, you know, taking these courses or talking about these things, you can still have find huge help and huge changes um, through just doing this work yourself. And um, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge because it's just uh, an aspect and a dynamic of it that I hadn't ever really thought about that belonging and self-identity being so connected to our sexuality. And um, also just uh, addressing this topic of the high desire and low desire partner, because I do think that that is something that comes up so often for so many people. So I think it'll be really helpful. Um, Great. 
Yeah. I would love to ask you, first of all, where my listeners can go to find you. And then lastly, if you want to just share like one kind of final tip that you think would be helpful Mm -hmm. for for my listeners. Sure. Uh, So you can find me at my website is probably the the best place to go, which is finlaysonadvice.com. There's a hyphen between Finlayson and Fife. And on there, you can learn about my courses. You can learn about live workshops that we're uh, doing. Um, Also my podcast archive, which is, you know, hundreds of interviews uh, or hundreds of hours anyway, of interviews of me talking about spirituality and sexuality and all these things. And then I also have a free Facebook group where people can um, get access to free resources from me. I do a once a month, I teach a a class for an hour on a different topic that's been coming up in the group and also get information and input and, and perspective from other people in the group. So okay, I love that. What is your Facebook group called? It's called ask. I can never remember because it's so complicated. Ask an LDS marriage and sexuality therapist is the name. Okay. Okay. That is a mouthful. Okay. Ask an LDS marriage and family therapy specialist. Yeah. yeah, Marriage and sexuality therapist. And even though it's LDS, there's a lot of non-LDS people on there actually who just find these perspectives to be helpful just with the courses as well. A lot of people take them that are not religious even because I'm just teaching very much like today's conversation, teaching principles and ideas that help people see who they are and how they can, how they can um, improve. I love that. It's so needed in the world and so needed, not even in just the realm of, you know, people that have been grown up, grown up religious, but I think everyone struggles with these things with belonging and identity and sexuality. So, um, I think it'll be so helpful. So what, what's one tip that you feel like you could leave us with? Well, I think the thing I would maybe say in conclusion is that developing your deeper peace with yourself, with your embodiment, with your sexuality, and actually creating a more peaceful and joyful relationship with your spouse is one of the kindest things you can do for your children. They don't need to be privy to your sexual relationship, of course, but for them to see that you are comfortable in your own skin, that you are at peace with your body, that you like it when their dad touches you, you know, that that is a way of giving, resolving for them these anxieties. Now, not that they won't have to work out some of that themselves, mm-hmm. but if they see like marriage can actually be joyful, or you know, you really can be at peace with yourself and your body. You just spare them a lot of the self-doubt, fear, anxiety, self-rejection, and controlling behaviors that follow from that by you working it out yourself. So Rather than seeing it as, oh, I'll work out my sexuality, but that's separate from parenting, I think it's very connected to being a good parent mm-hmm. and making the more perverse forms of sexuality less compelling because there's a way to really integrate one's sexuality into one's moral life. Yeah. It's like a wholeness. It's like everything just kind of flows when you focus on that belonging and that self-identity. And um, what I talk about all the time is like, focus on your relationship, focus on your connection and then model behavior. Those are like the two main focuses of what I teach. And so I love this idea of modeling the behavior of you and you becoming and being comfortable with yourself, but then also modeling what a healthy sexual relationship looks like. And then being able to give that to our children um, because they'll be able to see it all through their childhood. That's right. So thank you. I think that was just a perfect end. Thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure that you give it five stars on Apple and check out my monthly membership for moms in the show notes. 